This is Ian Freebairn Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Right now, I would like to introduce Alan Ferguson, whom I met finally when I moved out here and worked with and admired greatly. So if you'll please stand up and blush a little, Alan, and you'll introduce our guest. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and a bigger pleasure to be asked to introduce introduce the next guest, or the guest of the day. In uh, looking and speaking with Charlie, uh, we both sit on the motion picture uh, music board, the, the executive board. So I see him all the time, and I've known Charlie for a long time. And, and yet, I didn't really know that much about him, if you about his history, if you will. Uh, it turns out, I studied with Nadia Boulanger in France, and so did he. And I had no idea that that, that was the case. And we were both, quote, serious, unquote, writers and composers. And uh, I, it, it, it's hard to understand that when you know somebody from his reputation in, in Hollywood. Five years of Charlie's Angels, that's what people remember about me. They remember the love boat about, uh, about Charlie. Never mind the piano concertos we've done and, and written and all of the serious, so-called serious music. That goes down in the tubes. But it's interesting that, as Charlie said, it prepared us for what we had to do to make a living. And uh, so, no, without further ado, it's just interesting that our careers are, are that parallel, if somewhat at a different time, roughly 15 years. So, here's Charlie. Thank you very much. Alan, thank you very much for that nice introduction. Uh, it's truly an honor to be here um, with a group of people whose work I admire so much. Ronaldo and Alan, and so many of you. And, uh, it's truly an honor to be here and uh, get a chance to tell some of the things that, uh, that have happened in my life. Uh, I would start by saying I first found out that the first president of ASMAC was Robert Russell Bennett. And uh, I don't know about most of you, but I had a lot of help along the way. Nothing just happened by itself. And there's always someone who took time at some point in my life to say, what can I do for you? And uh, needless to say, I more than appreciate it. It's a, it's a legacy that I am proud to continue when I have the chance to do that for other people. Um, 
I studied with Nadia Bolasher as Alan said, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about her too, uh, a little bit later. But first, um, I went to, when I was getting started, after I finished my studies, it was in Venice for two years, and uh, getting started doing anything, as we all know, is very difficult. So someone had told me that Robert Russell Bennett was uh, a student of Bolasher, and I thought I'd give him a call and see if that would he would see me. He was very nice and very gracious and cordial. He said, sure, why don't you come over and see me? And uh, we talked about music, about Boulanger. And he said, how can I help you? What can I do for you? And I said, I was just trying to break into earning a living, have a young family, a wife and a child. And he said, well, what can you show me? And of course, my background, as Alan said, was, uh, was in classical music. I love some chamber works. I could show him. Um, but I also had um, a background in Latin music. When I was about 15 years old, I played in the Casco Mountains. Some of you, I know you did then. Some others of you may have done that too. And you get a chance to do everything when you do that. And it's a great training ground, by the way, Casco Mountains. Long since gone, you can't do that anymore. Um, but um, one day, uh, visiting, uh, we got invited to a, another band. Randy Carlos Orchestra, which was playing at one of the big hotels in the Caspals, and we went down to see them play, and, and it was a Latin band, and it just changed me. It blew my mind. I love Latin music. It, it was so filled with that energy, and it was hot, and, and, and I still do, actually. I still love Latin music. So I got into Latin music. I played with bands. I wrote arrangements. I eventually played with Ray Barretta, and Tito Puente, and Ray, Randy Randy Carlos. And I wrote for all those bands as well, Ray, original tunes and arrangements. But as I sat with Robert Russell Bennett, I didn't really um, have anything more to play for him than that. So I said, what I would do is I'd go home and write something. So I did. I went home and I wrote a, a, a dance suite for the theater orchestra. And I came back in about a week or two with a fully orchestrated piece. And he looked at it, and I, I guess he was impressed. And he said, let me see what I can do to help you. And then shortly after that, he called me, and he said, uh, he has a couple thoughts. He spoke to um, some people at the University of Washington in Vermont, I think it was Bennington, about my being an assistant teacher and a composer in residence, if I wanted to choose that path. Uh, he also spoke to Sketch Henderson about me, who would be happy to meet me if I wanted to choose that path. So something my, my a diverse converge of paths in my life to choose from. And really there was no choice because just having studied with Nadia Boulanger, I couldn't see myself as a, as a teacher. Not about that. And now as actually it happens, I'm on the faculty at UCLA out of the, uh, the film composition class that was Jerry Goldsmith's. That when he got sick he asked me to take the class over and that was about four or five years ago. And um, I'm very happy to do that. But it's um it uh, it was not my path at that point. So uh, I said, but I'm very happy to, uh, to meet Sketch Henderson. And, and, uh, and so Robert was, was really helpful to me. So I went to Sketch Henderson's house. Now he lived uh, on 57th Street. He had a studio called Studio 3. And he lived right above the studio with his wife, Ruth. And uh, he was very warm and, warm and wel me, welcoming to me. And uh, he said he would use me right away. It always impressed me. He would come downstairs from his, from his 
rooms upstairs in the slippers and conduct. He could do that because he could live right, right under the studio. So a skit started to give me work, and the very first thing I did for him was a part of a documentary film that he was working on. Um, and he gave me part of it to do. And uh, uh, he recorded it in Germany because I wasn't there, but it was for a 60 piece orchestra. And uh, when he came back and I heard my music with a 60 piece orchestra, I really couldn't believe I wrote that. You know, it sounded, I thought I heard it in my mind, but really it sounded a lot better than it. my mind allowed me to hear it. And then he shortly after that took over the Tonight Show band, and uh, he would ask me from time to time to write uh, arrangements, special arrangements for him at the piano when he'd come out and perform with the band. And then he'd also ask me to write theme material. There was the main tonight, tonight Show theme, as we all know. But also, as when the show goes on and off the air for commercial breaks, there are themes. And so I started writing some of those themes. And one day, the um, librarian, I think his name was Sandy Cohn, the Tonight Show officer, is that right? I remember right? Shelly Cohn. Shelly Cohn, right. Shelly, thank you. He said to me, uh, you know, I have to list your works in, uh, for performing rights. Uh, are you with BMI or ASCAP? And I said, what's that? <laughs> so he explained to me that they would pay me money when my works were on the air. I said, I thought that sounded good. I, I had no idea. And uh, so he wrote down BMI and ASCAP, and the BMI came up first. So I called them first. And uh, I think it was Neil Anderson. What's the barber again? Barber came, BMI. Um, Neil, uh, Neil said, come on down. and. And I talked to him and he said, we'll, we'll pay you not only when your music is on you know, television, but radio and around the world. I, I couldn't conceive of around the world yet. And I was happy to not get paid for the Tonight Show themes. <coughs> so I saw him right there. I never even called him, uh, And that was 1962. And I'll say that uh, it's the, the uh, longest and only professional relationship I've had in all my years in my music since 1962, and a very happy one. Um, and let's see, and, uh, and now, uh, about a year or two later, I actually got a call from Robert Russell Bennett if I would help him with something. Uh, he was doing a television special for Richard Rogers uh, called Saturday Nights Around the World. And uh, it, there was a section of it that had to do with, well, it was all about what people do on Saturday nights around the world, and what Rogers was the composer. And uh, there was one section to do with what younger people do on Saturday nights. I think he thought that I could do a more contemporary uh, approach at that time. So it was kind of interesting for me, and I'll pass on to you now. Uh, I never met Richard Rogers, and not to take anything from him, I think he was a, a lot of genius. But what I got from him was a little, little tune with some chord symbols over it, and that was what I had to score this section of the show. And when I think about a victory at victory at sea, this magnificent 26 episode version of music by Richard Rogers. If you go to Amazon.com, it says music by Richard Rogers conducted by Robert Russell Bennett. The album actually says arranged and conducted. But when I think of these little tunes, however beautiful they were that Rogers gave to Bennett, and what Bennett made of those tunes, and how we composed with them, and how we de de developed them, and brought them into magnificent score, I think with all of the, 
for all the credit he gets, I think Robert Russell Bennett gets, deserves a lot more credit for that magnificent work that he did on that. Um, I thought I would tell you a little bit about my, my studies with Nadia Boulanger. Um, I was 18 years old when I went to study with Nagy Boulanger, and um, I had a letter of recommendation from Thomas Shippers, who was very nice to get, get to see me and listen to some of my music, and he was conductor of the Metropolitan Opera at the time, and he wrote a nice letter for me and my teacher from high school, who I continued to study, studying uh, composition with privately after high school. And uh, <clears throat> there was, uh, there was, there's no longer a school there, but there was a conservatory in the Palace of Fontable, right, right in the Palace of Fontable. It was only a, a summer school, and Mademoiselle Boulanger was the, the head of the school. And uh, it was a great program, and I was fortunate to get to, to go there for the summer, but only for the summer. And uh, I still remember the first day that I met her. Um, she impressed me as being the most extraordinary person, certainly the most extraordinary musician the most extraordinary, alive, vibrant person I ever met. And these many years later, I sought to say the same thing. She's still the most extraordinary person I ever met. And really, she gave me a whole life in music that I carry to this day. Uh, even though I had studied music for years, and harmony and theory, counterpoint, uh, composition, uh, she took me right back to triads. And from day one, and I spent a whole year on three-part harmony before we even went to four-part harmony. And um, it was a very, uh, she was very old world, very, very, um, uh, very French. And uh, during the winters, when I, when I went out and stayed for the winter, um, she wouldn't greet a man who wasn't wearing a suit and a tie. Because a man was, without a tie, was naked. Uh, we had to do our work in, uh, I don't know if you remember the song, pen, 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 no pencil. She wouldn't look at work in pencil. So everything I did in pencil, I had to then redo it in, in, in ink. And every week with the, with the given basis, with the, with the uh, four-part harmony writing, which we had to do on four staves with four cliffs, um, uh, all the corrections were done one on top of the other, just little paste-ups. So by the time you finished correcting things, you'd have a whole little book. That first summer, she asked me to write a piece for uh, the instrumentals that we had at the, uh, in the school, which was a string quartet, a trumpet, and uh, seven flutes. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, I've had that piece performed a number of times since. Uh, yeah. um, but, uh, but that's what we had. So when that came time for the performance, and I asked her who would conduct, and she said, well, but you must. I said, when I had to conduct, she said, a composer must conduct his own works. So I learned how to conduct very quickly, and I practiced looking in the mirror to see if it made any sense. And now I was on the, um, it's not really, not really a podium, it's just a chamber orchestra. And uh, I was on the stage, and she was standing right next to me, and I was conducting my piece, and at one point she tugged at my sleeve like this. So I stopped the musicians, and she made a suggestion to me of what I could do to make the music perform better. <clears throat> I thought about it quickly, and it was a tough spot for me because 
here's Nadia Boulanger, you know, she, her, her teacher was Foray, and her, her uh, classmate was Ravel at the conservatory, and Stravinsky was a best friend. <laughs> She's suggesting something to make my music better, and it didn't sound right to me. <laughs> I really didn't have a handle it, so I thought about it, and I turned back to the musicians, and I said, uh, let's play it halfway between the way I wrote it and the way she suggested. And then I raised my hand to conductor. She tugs on my sleeve again like this. And she said, oh, my dear. She says, compromises makes for very nice friendship, but for very bad music. <laughs> she says, play it the way you want it, or play it the way I want it. She says, but don't compromise. Don't do anything halfway. So it's a, that's a lesson that I, uh, I carry with me to this day. Uh, so she wanted me to come to, to Paris just to continue my studies. And I said, I didn't, really didn't think my, my parents could afford it, although I'd love it very much. So she said, even if they could um, give me $100 a month, which was very little, even in 1959, um, I could get by. So we sat down and she made a budget up for me of how I could live. And uh, I saw she didn't write anything for lessons, so I said, oh, Mademoiselle, you didn't include any money for lessons. And she said, let's not worry about that. She said, I'm more concerned you have, money, you have food to eat. She said, one day, if you can, um, you'll do the same for someone else. So that's another legacy that I carry with me. Um, so I went to Paris and I, I was with her for, uh, for two years and uh, it, it would take so, so long to go through all the things, but it was, uh, probably, uh, she leaves me with this, this enormous sense of, um, of the value of music and the value of life. And, um, she was truly an extraordinary person. She sometimes, in the middle of a lesson, uh, having a side, one time she said to me uh, that Gershwin came to study with her. But uh, she turned him down because she thought that she would hurt him, that he was already too immersed in his own style. And, and uh, she would have to take him back to the beginning of harmony, was what she did. So the story goes, I didn't hear this from her, but the story goes after that uh, he went to Stravinsky trying to find someone else to teach him. And Stravinsky said, tell me, George, how, how much do you make? He said, half a million dollars or something. He said, maybe I should study with you. Ravel? Well, you went to Ravel to study. Okay. Okay. Now, I'll tell you what I read. I read in the, in the biography of Gershwin that he sat with Ravel at a piano in New York, Gershwin. And they played at a party, which he played very. He, he performed his rough symbol many times. Yeah. But when he was in a piano with Ravel, I thought he asked Ravel. He asked if he would study them. Ravel suggested Boulanger. But then I, I heard, I heard that they went to Savinsky. I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> Back to library. <laughs> Another time, um, she said to me. She was always wonderful in the middle of the lesson for saying something, something would catch her mind. If I knew Michelle Legrand, who was a student of hers, and I said, uh, I knew who he was. She said, it's too bad about him. I said, what's, what's too bad? She says, well, he's, he, he's so talented, he does music for movies. <laughs> her face would get all screwed up in her <laughs> She didn't relate to movies at all. And then another time she said to me, uh, do I know Quincy Jones, who was this dude? And I said, I, I knew who Quincy Jones was. She said, you know, he's such a lovely man. He, 
he comes here and takes a few lessons, and then I don't see him for a month. And I always get a postcard from, from all these places in Europe. And he plays in a jazz band, <laughs> and the face would screw up again. <laughs> That's another thing she didn't know this thing was jazz. But she said, "But he's such a lovely man because every time he comes back, he, he brings me flowers, beautiful flowers." And I guess that must have made an impression on me because for all the years after I left her. Uh, and I go to Paris quite often. Uh, I always stopped the little flower shop downstairs in her house. And if I couldn't see her that day, I would send her flowers. And then one day, uh, my wife Joan and I were in Paris, and we're on our way to the south of France. I had a rented car. I said, I just want to stop by a Madame Boulanger and send her some flowers, not expecting to see her. He really just didn't come in unannounced. And. Uh, so I left Joan in the car in front of uh, Rubello. Um, and I went into the flower shop right downstairs. And while I was in the flower shop, Giuseppe, who was, uh, he along with his wife, took care of him. There was a boulanger in the house and cooked for her. He passed by and saw me in the flower shop and he came in. So happy to see me, Bonjour Monsieur Fox, and Tariul and all that. We had a little conversation. And uh, um, he said, well, are you here to bring for these flowers, Mademoiselle Boulanger? I said, of course. He said, well, you must bring it upstairs. And I said, well, she's teaching, isn't she? She, said, she taught from 7 a.m. to 11 o'clock at night. So she's always kind of even for lunch, through lunch. I said, no, I, I couldn't bother. He said, no, but you must. And anyway, he prevailed, and I found myself riding up to the third floor again of her apartment house with the flowers. And um, Zita, his wife, opened the door and she was so happy to see me. And she said, well, hold on, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you some other results. I said, no, 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 don't give because you'll, you'll, you'll bother her. You, you didn't want to bother Mademoiselle Moore, she had a medical lesson. Uh, she said, no, no, I, I will. And she left you know, to the living room where she died. And in the moment, I could hear her voice through the walls, Gila, who's, who's there? And in the moment she came out, and she, Kisses for me and hugs for me. And she's holding my, my right hand in two hands. She said, But my dear, I'm so sorry. I can't give you a proper greeting. And I'm so nice to see you. And how are you? And how's, how's your lovely wife? And how's your child? And, and how are you? And are you composing? That's all she ever wanted to know if I was composing. And I said I was. She said, I'm just, I'm just so delicious. She said, uh, I'm happy I can't give you a proper greeting. She said, Consider this a proper greeting. And she gave me another hug and a kiss, and, uh, and she left. And actually, that was uh, uh, the last time I, uh, I saw her. But I was so filled with the energy after seeing her, which I always was, that I bounded down the three flights of stairs and out the door. And I was halfway up the block towards the plus cliche, and suddenly I hear someone yelling, trolling, trolling. And I turned around to my wife, half a block away, like, where are you going? <laughs> I had totally forgotten. I had a wife sitting in my car. I don't know where I thought I was going, maybe back to an apartment I hadn't been in 20 years. <laughs> but she, she had that effect on me. And she truly did, anyway. And uh, in 1979, a ballet that I wrote, my first ballet, A Song for Dead Warriors, was being performed at the um, War Memorial Opera House with the San Francisco Ballet Company. And uh, I was planning to go back to Paris to give her a copy of ballet, which I uh, dedicated to her. 
And she uh, unfortunately died just two days before I got there. But I did buy flowers. I went upstairs and I sat with Giuseppe and Zita and also Mademoiselle Dudemey, who was my solfeggio teacher in Mademoiselle Boulanger's apartment. That was my last memory of it. But, uh, but I carry her with me through my whole life. She, uh, if I'm writing quickly, we're talking about Lalo and Alan about writing by hand versus writing by hand. We all write by hand, which I'm sure most of you do too, well, if not all of you. Um, if I'm writing quickly, and I sometimes don't attach a stem to a, a note because it's, I'm too busy, I, I can hear her. I can hear her voice saying, but my dear, if it's an important note to write, why not take the trouble to put, attach a stem to the note? I do carry that with me. Well, anyway, now I'm back in, in New York after two years of studying up with her, and I told you about Robert Russell Band, and I'm trying to get started. And I, I won't tell you through my whole life, but, um, uh, you know, there's sometimes things that, some jobs that turn out to be more important than others, even though that may not sound as something. You never know who you're going to be, where you're going to make them, or what, what job might turn out to be beneficial. And one of those for me that was beneficial was uh, getting a job to do two arrangements for um, Barbara Feldman, who was the co-star of a show called Get Smart, and uh, Danny Nolnick and, and David Susskind were producers of that show, and I was the arranger. And uh, something about the arrangement, uh, they thought I could do the film. And uh, Danny Nolnick put his arm around me and said, I, hey kid, I think it sounds like you could do movies. I happen to agree with them. <laughs> so they gave me a chance, and they, uh, I did a, a film for them that was a television film uh, called, it was a remit excuse me, a remake of a film called Johnny Belinda with Mia Farrell. Well, one thing led to another, and uh, I got a chance to do my first television theme was Wide World of Sports, which I think is still on the air today. And then a couple of years later, uh, they're gonna, and ABC is going to try to put uh, football on at night to see what happens. So I did the theme for Monday Night Football, which was on for, my theme was on for the first seven years before it was replaced. Uh, did a lot of things for a lot of shows that you know, didn't last very long. The Joe Namath show, none of you know. <laughs> the John Rivers show, none of you know. Um, and also before there was PBS, there was PBL, Public, Public Broadcasting Laboratories. And I did the theme for that. Um, some of my personal experiences with, with themes, I don't know how well, what you've all gone through, well, I don't know how you've gone through with all of yours, but uh, sometimes it's difficult or as daunting as it can be just to come up with the right thematic idea for the right show. Sometimes the, the more difficult thing was just getting the producers to hear it and just getting people to hear it to know what you're about. And I got the start, to, uh, the chance to do some of the good and top and game show themes when I got started. What's my line? Tell the truth and match game. And uh, I was young, I was 20 something, 23, 24 years old. And, uh, there was no demos, it was all live at the piano. And so I, I would, during this period, I would go to the Goods and Todman office, and uh, they had a huge office in the Seagram's building on Park Avenue. And um, the 30th floor was their floor, and there was a huge conference table, and Marcus used to invite all his producers, and Gene Rayburn was one of the hosts of the show, secretaries all to listen to me playing my theme. And I'd be ushered into this huge room, and the end of this huge room was what looked like a half a piano. <laughs> it was, about, it was like, I think, a 66 note. I don't know why they haven't invented a piano like that. Uh, but it was, it was like a half a piano. Uh, 
and they have plenty of room in this room, so use your best buddy. And in my mind, I hear orchestra, I hear trumpets, we couldn't make a demo. Uh, I hear trumpets and percussion, flutes, and, but all I had was this piano to play them, so I'd sit at the piano, with all these people around, and I was a little nervous, obviously. And I start to play, and uh, I get through it. Oh, yeah, but while, when I was playing, Mark would always have a position. He would kind of lean on, on the piano, his right arm like this. Well, not like this, actually. He listen like this. And with his left arm, he had a big cigar. So he, this was his position, listening to my playing the theme. Um, and I get through the theme, and I finish, and there was a resounding silence. <laughs> Nothing. No one made a peep. Um, and then he would think about it, he would point to his people around the room, what did you think, what did you think? But they didn't know what he thought, so they weren't going to say what he, they thought. So um, they would say things like, I need to hear it again, with nice beat, uh, innocuous things. So finally he said, all right, let's, let's, let's hear it again. So he'd go back to his position like this with a cigar, and I'd go back to the piano, and invariably, I, I, in the middle of playing it the second time, I'd look down at the floor and I'd, I'd see his foot start to tap. And his foot was tapping into my head. That was a signal for me. Anyway, um, then years later I got to California. And uh, it wasn't necessarily much, much easier. I'd go to, even having demos, I'd go to producers' offices who had no cassette machine and no way to play a theme, but they just hired me to write. So we'd end up in my little two-seater car, you know, just with two producers at a time, like revolving producers in and out of my car. <laughs> um, and probably the strangest of all, from my playing themes to people, was with the Love Boat, which um, I wrote uh, with Paul Williams. It was originally a movie, actually, originally a Love Boat movie, and did a few, a few movies and it was a series. And uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to make the theme into a, a song and Paul wrote a lyric. And so now I had a very full demo to play for, uh, for the producer Aaron Spelling, Doug Kramer. And I, uh, I go to Doug Kramer's, uh, Aaron Spelling's office and he greets me with his, rubbing his two hands together like, oh boy, what did you bring me, you know? And I said, I have to a good, excuse me, good song. <clears throat> So I said, I come prepared. I have any which way to play for the other tape machine. And looks around the offices, not tape machine. I said, All right, cassette machine is fine. I have it on cassette. So he looks around the room for a cassette machine, and he gets on the intercom with the secretary. And Can you find us a ticket? Anyway, it turns out there's no cassette machine in the building. <laughs> so I said, Well, it's okay. We're on the lot of 20th Century Fox. That's where Aaron's office was then. Uh, I said, let's go to a piano. I'll play live with the piano. He said, okay, let's find a piano. So I got back with the secretary, and she came back in two minutes and said, there's no piano available on the line. 20th Century Fox. So I look at them, and I shrug, and they look at me, and I said, all right, here goes. Love. <laughs> Exciting ending. <laughs> That's how they voted, and the curious things they liked it. <laughs>
so that's some of my experiences. The, then I, 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 I don't know how long I'm on, but uh, just to conclude, I thought I would tell you about a particular day in my life that was very uh, wonderful, interesting, and a little hairy at the same time. <clears throat> it was my, my first day in Hollywood. Um, I had done a picture, my first movie was a picture called The Incident with, with Larry Pierce directing. And there was a wonderful dramatic picture that took place on the streets of New York on a subway car. Then his next picture was Goodbye Columbus, which he wanted me to score. But no one in Paramount, nobody said no one could, no one could approve that. In the interim, uh, I did an album with Ben Lanzaroni and Bob Crew. Uh, of music that from the classics that we made into uh, uh, pop album, using classic, classics as a bass, but also Latin and rock and jazz. And Bob Crew was an important songwriter producer. He got the, the opportunity from Paramount to rescore a picture of Bob Rilla. And Bob was a Michigan songwriter, lyricist. So he asked me to work with him. So he brought me in and we wrote five or six songs for the picture and I scored the film. And now, people at Paramount were nervous because they have a young fellow that no one knew scoring this picture in New York. So Bill Stinson came to New York. Uh, Paul Hagerm was my music editor. It was a Dino who this picture. Dino was there, and uh, Roger Vadim was the director. Anyway, uh, it all went well. And um, then uh, after that, Stanley Jaffe was a producer of uh, Goodbye Columbus. I know I was on a street corner in New York one day and I called home and my wife said, uh, uh, call Jack, Stanley Jaffe quickly, he wants to talk to him. Uh, so I called Stanley and he said, how'd you like to come to Hollywood to school Goodbye Columbus? And so that was a, a life-changing telephone call in my life, you know. So now we're coming out to California for two months to do the picture and uh, I have two children at this point and my wife, so we, we apparently rent this very nice apartment and they sent the limousine for me. And here we are in the middle of winter, and I see palm trees and swimming pools and everything. I couldn't believe we were here, actually, after all that. And the next day, I had a rented car, and I went to Paramount. And uh, I was raided on the Paramount uh, wall with a big billboard of uh, Bob Rell with my name on it. And the, uh, the guard said, uh, he directed me to the music building, and said, there's a spot with your name on it, you'll see it. So I pulled to my parking sponsors. Charles Fox, and right next to me, the left says Neil Hefty, and the right is at Henry Mancini. And I just thought I had really, this was heaven. <laughs> this was as much as I ever dreamed about. Um, so then inside of Bill Stinson, Paul Hagel, all my friends had met in New York, and John Hamill was the head of music also at that time, and, uh, and a very nice elderly man, Phil Coggin, was the uh, was the contractor. He had kind of, probably was well in his 80s, and he contracted for Stravinsky and Stokowski the ball. So we had to say hello. We chit chat, and uh, uh, Phil says, "So well, let's talk about the orchestra." So we said, "What kind of an orchestra?" And I said, I, "I don't need a big band. Maybe a couple of trumpets, a couple of woodwinds, a rhythm section, not too many strings." He said, fine. He said, do you know anyone that you want to use? I said, I, I don't know anyone. He said, well, tell me, well, what are you looking for on drums? Uh, and I tell him someone who should read well, but have a good feel for pop music and jazz. And I said, well, how about Shelly Mann? I said, Shelly Mann would play for me? He said, absolutely. And then I described what I was saying. He said, well, how about Bud Shank on sax? I said, 
Bunch, eh? <laughs> and I got Pete Jolly on piano. I said, Pete Jolly, I just wore out his record like with Bill Perkins and his quintet. Kathy and how about Kathy Condoli? Anyway, so now I'm in musical heaven with, with this band. And it comes to the strings, and he says, How many violins do you need? I said, Not too many, maybe six or eight. Okay. How many violas? Maybe two or three. Cello, the same thing, two or three. At some point, John Hamill gets up and walks over to the window. He's looking outside. And Phil Coggan leans into me and he said, Charlie, you have a little stinky orchestra here. I said, really? He said, it's a little stinky orchestra, you got six violins? He said, it's going to be embarrassing to make a movie in Hollywood. <laughs> At this point, I'm totally intimidated. I said, really? He said, this is Hollywood. He says, take 20 violins. Take 10 cellos. He says, a little stinky orchestra. It's going to be embarrassing. So I knew I didn't come all this way to be left out of Hollywood. And John Hamill comes back and I said, John, I'm reconsidering the orchestra. Can I ask? So I said, sure, no problem. I said, how about 20 violins? Is that right? How about 10 violas? Fine. Anyway, so I ended up with a 60-65 piece orchestra. And I'm very excited. I never had a 65 piece orchestra before. I don't know what I was going to do with a 65 piece orchestra. I didn't want to be left at the Hollywood. So now, um, John says, uh, let's go have some lunch together. Finish the orchestra call. And those days, Lolly now, you guys remember this. Um, there was a commissary on next to the next to the uh, music front of it. Now there's commissaries on the other side. Well, there were two, and there was a table then where composers would sit when they were working on a lot. So we're having lunch, and sure enough, after all, Henry Mancini comes in. John waves him over, and I'm sitting next to and I'm sitting to, next to Henry Mancini as a colleague having lunch. I'm just thrilled. As as you know, he's the nicest man in the world. Great town. One of the sweetest, nicest men ever, men ever, too. So we're talking. He asked me if I'm in the Motion Picture Academy. I said, no. He said, well, it'd be great to have you come in. He said, nice to get some new, fresh blood. I said, okay, great. He said, um, how many pictures have you done? I said, you have to have the minimum three. I said, well, this is my third picture. He said, perfect. He said, you can't join. You have to be invited. He said, so I'll sign your card. Do you know anyone else that can sign your card? I said, I don't know anyone. He says, well, I'll get Elmer. And I said, Elmer Bernstein? Gonna sign my card? <laughs> anyway, uh, I came home that day and I told my wife, what, what happened? My first day in Hollywood and Henry Mancini and Elmer Bernstein invited me into the Motion Picture Academy. And I have a 65 piece orchestra and this was pure heaven for me. The next morning, nine o'clock in the morning, I had a call from Stanley Jaffe, the producer of the movie. He said, Charlie, did you go crazy here now? Well, you better come in fast and see me. So I go running into the office, and I'm sitting in front of his desk, and, and he said, what are you trying to do? He says, in New York, you had 30, 35 years. I had a budget, you doubled my budget. He said, what, did you go crazy? Do you really need 20 violins? I said, no, six will be fine. <laughs> what about 10 violins? I said, two will be fine. <laughs> I was right back to my third um, And I must tell you, that was the last time I was intimidated by anyone. Now, what I thought a picture needed, 
Anyway, I don't want to take up more, more of your time, but uh, um, I would just tell you what love and marriage. So, okay, what, when I finished, uh, the, I finished the picture. Uh, I was going to go home, and, and Paramount asked if I would hang around for another month or so and do the pilot for Love American Style. They had a new, a new show that was going to be difficult. So it was an anthology, comedy anthology series. And so I stayed for another month. I did that, and I found out uh, that it sold. And for one year, I was actually commuting back and forth. Uh, the first year of the series, I was living in New York, commuting back and forth. And, and one day, my, my agent uh, at the time, it was Mark Newman, uh, told me that Paramount said, you know, we don't usually fly composers back and forth on a weekly basis. So with per diems and full effort, he said, uh, really, I need to decide if I'm going to work on the show and uh, It was not hardly a decision. I was, I was doing movies. I was in television here anyway. So well, a year later, we actually moved. That was 1970. I saw your uh, the TV show the first time, and I watched the show just to listen to your theme, and I thought the guy Charles Fox would have a future. I, I hadn't known about you at all. You thought Charles Fox was what? That he had a great future. But listen to him oh. a lot of America's well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? I'm happy to answer questions. Okay. Yes. Songs. 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 You have hit songs. Oh, um, well, I didn't think I'd take it through my whole life, but uh, I'm happy to. Um, well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll tell you about Killing Me Softly, um, because that was kind of an unusual story, too. Uh, Norman Gimbel and I were working with a young artist named Laurie Lieberman, and um, uh, we had nine songs in the can, and we needed a tenth song, and, and Capitol called us and said, we want to get this record out right away. Um, so Norman had an idea for a song, this little book of ideas that was killing me softly with his blues. And we thought, that sounds like an old-fashioned word even then, in the 70s. Uh, so he said, how about killing me softly with a song, and we just liked it. And he, that night he gave me a lyric. Um, that night I finished it, and the next morning Laurie came over and we started to rehearse it. And uh, Capitol thought that would be the single record, and, and indeed it was. And the only thing was, uh, she was a new artist, and with new artists it's very tough to get the promotion, the airplay, you know, no matter how much you push. Um, so it really wasn't happening, her single record wasn't happening. Uh, but, but the one good thing that Capitol did was they got us on the air in American Airlines. Um, and they're, at that time, they had like theater in the sky. So, um, for one month, they would feature an album. Well, as luck would have it, one month Roberta Flack was flying between Chicago and, and Los Angeles, and uh, she was a prisoner at 35,000 feet. <laughs> and she heard the song, and uh, and she called me, and she tracked me down. Actually, I was uh, I was walking to the music library at Paramount Pictures, and someone handed me the telephone and said. Uh, yeah, this is for you. And, and the voice on the other end of the line said, uh, Hi, this is your Roberta Flack. You don't know me, but I'm going to record your songs. And uh, so uh, that, was, uh, that was how that song got, got his chance to take off. Um, let's see. Uh, shall I talk more about songs? Would you like to? Sure, sure. Anything. Uh, and got another five minutes. Another five minutes, OK. Um, <laughs> Seven. Seven minutes. Um, well, uh, th there was a picture called The um, Last American Hero, and they wrote a song for the film. And uh, there was a singer, a hit singer, going to 
won't mention his name, but uh, he was going to sing the song, and one day he held the song for so long, and, and uh, that it was uh, the producer kept calling me, "Where's this? We need the record. We need this record out." And uh, finally, he called me back and said he doesn't think the song is ahead. And I said, "That's fine. We all have different impressions of what's ahead, what's not ahead." Um, but um, I said, well, if you, "I wish you hadn't waited this long, because now I'm going to be, be hard to find another hit singer." You know. So over the phone we played it for John Denver, we played it for Jim Croce. And over the phone both said they would sing it, and we chose Jim Croce, who was just coming up with a song called Operator. And, um, uh, but he agreed to do it. So I flew to New York, for, uh, first I made the track, I got his, his key. I made a track on the 20th Century Fox uh, stage, Fox stage. And I flew to New York with the track, and I met with Jim. And, uh, that was a very nice meeting, I always remember, because he was, Great young singer songwriter. And uh, first thing he said to me is, let, let me hear that song again. He said, no, I never heard it. I only heard it the one time on the, on the phone. And so I played it and I sang it to him. And he said, I knew I had to sing that song. He said, because it just made me feel so close to my father, who's, who didn't live to, uh, just very long in his life to see his own fulfilled dreams fulfilled. Of course, unfortunately, it was a prophecy for what happened with Jim as well. And then he said, let me play this song for you. And he took the guitar and he played, I have to sing and say I love you in a song. And I always remember that as a nice exchange of, uh, of songwriters, you know. Uh, now, I'll tell you something else about that. Years later, Lena Horne was doing that show, the song on Broadway, her own version of the song as I got a name. And it was a big hit, big hit for him. And then Jim went down and played. Uh, years later, uh, Lena Horne was opening her show, Sean Broadway with my song, with I Got a Name. And Alan Baron Bergman said to me one day, I should fly to New York. So you, you'll never hear another version of uh, as good as that. And of course, uh, now Lena Horne had already recorded it once before with Michelle's Emily Prize arrangement. And it really was, it was okay. You know, it was nothing really great. I didn't think so. Although I loved her. Um, but what she did in the show, was fantastic. So she, the show opened here at the Schubert Theater. I couldn't go to New York to see her then, but I did go, and it opened at the Schubert Theater. And she came out singing a little bit of Stormy Weather, which is kind of a signature song, I'm sure we all know. And then she did a full version of my song that just rocked the house. I mean, she just, she added things to it, and she made it into a whole new dynamic world. And, and uh, everyone stood up and gave her a standing ovation. Uh, the first song of the show is very unusual. So the next day, I, uh, I sent her flowers, sent her a bouquet of flowers to a dressing room. Just thanks for my grateful songwriting, you know. And I got the, the nicest note back from her, which I have in my room framed. And it just it starts off by saying to the, comp to the composer, my favorite song. Uh, and she, but she says something, you have no idea what it means to me every time I sing the song because it brings me back to my father. It gives me a, ch gives me a chance to say thank you to him for all the things. So it's just interesting about a song. How, how it moves people and how it, the effect it has on uh, people around the world. But here's two singers who, whose lives were moved by. And for me, obviously, it's, a, it's always a thrill to hear a great singer sing a song. And, uh, so I've had a nice longevity with that song as well. Am I seven minutes up? Let me just say one other little thing I, 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 I'll share with you. Um, my friendship with uh, Jerry Goldsmith, um, because we had some wonder, wonderful times together. Some I truly miss. Um, Jerry was 
spectacular composer, as we all know, and a wonderful person. And uh, he brought so much, you know, to music. And I, I personally miss miss a lot of it because we. He's one of the few people I just sit and talk to music about, talk about music with. And um, we get together with Jerry, Jerry's house. He had two grand pianos, he still did with Carol has, uh, in the living room. And uh, we, we'd read through eight-hand piano music, you know, the classical repertoire. Uh, David Newman was, was there all the time. Mike Lang, you, you were there with us, and uh, a lot of other different people. And um, it was just great. It was a fun musical evening just to sit and read through classical literature, you know, four pianos. And, um, and then when Jerry got sick, he, um, he asked me to conduct for him uh, a couple times. And the last time, not the last, you know, the last time was, it was uh, he was doing, had two concerts back to back in, in London at the, at the uh, symphony and, uh, and in Japan. And he asked me if I would do his Japanese concerts. So I was in the middle of finishing my my, my ballet Zorro, which which is actually going to be premiered. It was premiered, but it'll be uh, back in San Francisco in May. Uh, they can do another week of Zorro ballet. Uh, but I was just getting finished with that in time for the premiere performance, and uh, Jerry asked me if I would do these concerts for him, and I I couldn't say no to him, you know. So it just meant during the day I was writing, and the night I was studying his scores, and. I did two separate concerts with two different uh, scores, uh, two, two, two complete different, well, a, a program and a half. And one of them was uh, music from uh, uh, The Exorcist. And I had a full uh, hundred voice choir, a big symphony orchestra. And I have to tell you, to stand up there and conduct his fantastic music, which was, it was just an extraordinary experience, you know. And, uh, anyway, uh, He's someone I truly miss. I'm sure we all miss him also. Anyway, uh, not to end it on a down note, but uh, uh, I just say thank you for giving me the privilege to uh, spend some of my, my let's talk about some of my life with all of you. And uh, it's truly an honor, as I said before, to have a chance to do that. And uh, a pleasure, so thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.